my name is Brandon Bishop. I have the scripture reading for passage this morning. This is Colossians 1, 13 through 16. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, may we see in it a king, a king who has come to reign, a king who has himself created his kingdom, created all things. May our heart's allegiance be won this morning by this great, good, humble, joyful King. May we see the Lord Jesus more clearly than we ever have before, and by faith, may we take hold of him this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been robbed. Call the police. You've been robbed. You, along with everyone else, has been robbed. We've all been robbed of something. You, me, everyone, we've all been robbed of something. What is that thing? We've all been robbed of a choice. It's a choice that many people today think they still possess. Many people think not only is this choice still in their possession, but it's a completely safe choice. It's a very safe choice. It's a respectable choice. It's a fair and to them obvious choice. They think this choice will always be there for them, like it's locked away, secure in a safe at home. But, to be brutally honest, most people try not to think about this, this choice very much. They'd rather not wonder if it's really still there, secure in the safe, because if they ever bothered to open the safe and examine what's there, they'd find this thing that they thought they left there safely is actually missing. It's gone. It's been stolen from them. What is this thing? What is this choice? It's this. The choice to believe that Jesus is merely a good moral teacher. That has been stolen from you. We'll see this morning in Colossians that the Bible robs us all of that choice. Jesus' very words rob us of that choice. Jesus made incredible claims. Claims that no good moral teacher would make. When standing trial before the Jewish council, Jesus was asked directly, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, Yes. I am. Jesus clearly made the claim, knowing full well what it would cost him. Jesus often taught that he and God the Father were one. That no one can come to the Father but through him. He taught that if you believed in him, you would live even if you died. He said that no one who kept his word would ever taste death. Good moral teachers 
don't go around telling people that they are God. Those, those who believe in them, that those who believe in them would never truly die. Good moral teachers don't persuade people that they are the only way to heaven, that they are the only way to be made right with God. You may not have realized it until this very moment, but you have been robbed by Jesus. By Jesus' very words, you have been robbed of the choice of seeing him merely as a good moral teacher. But sadly, most people don't know that. They don't know they've been robbed. Most people think that option is still there, securely locked away somewhere. They haven't bothered to open the safe and examine it, to examine and discover what they thought they had is actually missing. It's not there, secure in the vault. It never really was. People don't have the option of assuming that Jesus, the historical Jesus, is just some good moral Jewish teacher. Jesus himself robbed us all of that option. And if we were to examine it further, we quickly discover that Jesus' first followers also joined him in this robbery. They also robbed us of this option. Good moral teachers don't allow their followers to worship them as divine, as God come in flesh. But that's exactly what the first Christians did. They worshiped Jesus for who he is and for what he had done, as we'll see in Colossians. Jesus and the first disciples together have pried open the family vault and have robbed us all of the option of thinking that Jesus is merely a good moral teacher. But what are people prone to do when they first discover that what they thought was locked away secure isn't there in the safe after all? If they don't want to believe they've been robbed, that it's been stolen, they probably assume that there's been a mistake. The thing missing from the safe has been mistakenly placed somewhere else. People make a similar assumption about Jesus. Once they're forced to examine the incredible claims Jesus makes, they jump to the conclusion that there must be some mistake. There must have been a mistake made somewhere. Jesus must have been misquoted. If the historical Jesus really said these things, he can't be a good moral teacher. Therefore, the historical Jesus must not have said these things. He must have been misquoted. His claims to be God, his claims to preexistence, his claims that he defeated death, his claims to be the only way to God must have all been mistakes. They must all be made up. Someone writing much later must have put those words in his mouth. Because it's only over time, over centuries, that his followers came to believe in him as God and worship him, right? It's all just some big, big mistake, misunderstanding. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with not finding what you're looking for in the safe and assuming there's been some mistake? It's been mistakenly misplaced, not stolen. 
What's the problem with that conclusion? The problem is that it doesn't match the evidence. Your front door was wide open when you came home. There are muddy footprints going through your house to your bedroom closet where the safe is. There's a crowbar lying on the floor next to the safe's open door. All these things are adding weight to a conclusion. You've been robbed. Things haven't been misplaced. You've been robbed. You've been robbed of the choice to relate to Jesus as merely a good moral teacher. You see the evidence scattered all around you if you would care to look. If Jesus is merely a good moral teacher, why did moral religious people want so badly to kill him? If he didn't really say these things, why crucify him? If Jesus didn't really say these things, why did the early Christians go to their death saying that he did? Why, When a simple denial would have spared them a lot of pain, a lot of torture, a lot of death. Why does all the evidence point to Jesus being worshipped in the church from day one? And worshipped by an early church that was predominantly Jewish. The very last people you would expect to believe one of their religious leaders was God. From day one, Christians were hated and mocked because they worshipped Jesus and they refused to do the same for Caesar. Those who believe that the historical Jesus didn't say these things, those who believe that the New Testament is just a bunch of legends akin to the legends of King Arthur, those people have to assume this, that there must be a large amount of time between when Jesus lived and when the New Testament was written. Enough time for the original witnesses to die off and for legend to crop up. But there's a problem. It doesn't match the evidence. You can go to the Ryland Library in Manchester, England today and see a fragment of John's Gospel that is dated to the first century. Discovering a first century Gospel account should be like discovering a crowbar lying beside the open safe. There can't be copies of John's gospel from the first century, and there be enough time for legends to develop about Jesus. Not while the original witnesses are still alive. As we journey through the book of Colossians, we'll discover this at the end of the letter. Paul gives us a long list of first century people who are named, who send their greetings. These details don't make any sense to include unless these are real first century people whose lives really have been radically changed by Jesus. No other reason for it to be there. These are the original witnesses and the earliest disciples of Jesus. And what Paul teaches here. Well, we'll look at this morning. What Paul teaches here in this letter represents what Christians have believed about Jesus from the very beginning. You have to willingly ignore the evidence to think otherwise. You have to begin by assuming there must be a mistake. This can't be the real Jesus. 
people who go down that road, dismissing the Jesus of the Bible, dismissing the Jesus that Paul talks about here, can only go the way of speculation and guesswork when it comes to Jesus. Because there's nowhere else to go. And when you start speculating about Jesus, you usually end up creating a historical Jesus that looks very much like yourself. He happens to believe what you already believe. He happens to have said only the moral teachings that you want to hear. But the non-speculative Jesus, the only objective Jesus we have, is the Jesus of the Bible. And he is the most radical Jesus there is. The most radical Jesus is the one we have here in the text itself. The sheer weight of all the evidence should start feeling overwhelming. It's like a host of muddy footprints leading up to the open door of your safe. You've been robbed. You've been robbed of seeing Jesus as merely a good moral teacher. If that option has been stolen from you, then what are you left with? I think you already know. Either Jesus is a liar, intentionally trying to deceive us about himself. This is almost certainly what the Pharisees thought and why they wanted to crucify him. He's a liar. Either Jesus is a deceiver or he is self-deceived. He really does believe these things about himself. Like a crazy man believes himself to be Napoleon, Jesus believes himself to be God. If you take that option, then you are pretty hard-pressed. You have a pretty epic task to explain how the moral history of the world has been so radically changed by a crazy person. You have the option of taking Jesus as a liar, as a lunatic, or as Paul describes him here in Colossians 1. He is Lord. He is our rescuer and redeemer. He is God's reflection and radiance. He is creation's maker and heir. If you're unsatisfied with the liar or lunatic options, and you're convinced by the evidence for the faithful transmission of the Bible, as you should be, then you've got to come to grips with the only option that's left to you. It's right here. Let's dig in to it this morning. This is the last option. The way the Apostle Paul teaches us about Jesus, this is the only option left on the table. We're going to look at four verses this morning. I'm going to give you three headings each of which is a description of how we should take Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul. If Jesus isn't a liar or a lunatic, these descriptions are the only options we have left. And it's exactly how the early church saw Jesus. And remember, everything Paul says about Jesus here is backed up by what Jesus says about himself elsewhere. And I'll try to highlight that as we go. Here's the first thing we'll encounter. We'll encounter Jesus as our rescuer and redeemer. Jesus as our rescuer and redeemer. Look at verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the king over a kingdom. He is the king who has come to rescue us. 
That's what Jesus' name means. Do you, you know that. Jesus means God saves. God has come to save. Jesus is the king over a kingdom that isn't like any other. Jesus said this to Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus is the king. He's the truthful king. He's the king over a kingdom. And this kingdom isn't a nation state with boundaries and border guards keeping people out. Jesus is the king over a kingdom made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who have become citizens of a citizens of a heavenly kingdom, citizens of heaven, of another world entirely, of a far better country. But all these citizens were once enemies of this realm. We were all on the outside of the kingdom of light because we had a natural bent and love for the darkness. Jesus said this. He said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his evil deeds will be exposed. The very best of us and the very worst of us were all born into this domain of darkness. In that domain, we were slaves. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We were enslaved, and for the most part, we didn't even know it. We didn't realize it. Our enslavement was that complete. Like a fish in water, we were oblivious to the fact that we were wet. Even those who were the brightest and looked the best are still slaves to sin. You remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus asking about the way to eternal life. Even the best and brightest walks away sad. Why? Because he's enslaved. He's enslaved to his material blessings. His stuff ruled over him instead of the other way around. Jesus remarked how hard it is for a rich man to enter his kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Remember the disciples' response? Aghast. Well, who then can be saved? If even the best and most blessed examples of humanity are still in the domain of darkness, who can be saved? And Jesus said this about entering the kingdom. He said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In Jesus, God did the impossible. What we could never do. He rescued us from the domain of our sin and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Jesus had a powerful word picture for this transfer between kingdoms. You remember what it is? He called it being born again. 
That's the transfer between kingdoms, being born again. You've been, been born once physically into a kingdom, into the kingdom of this world. You've been born into the domain of sin and darkness. You were born once physically, but you need to be born again spiritually. You need to come alive to God and the things of God. You need new taste buds for God's glory, new desires for holiness. You need the life of God to enter into the soul of man, transferring your citizenship from this world to another world, to another kingdom. It's the second birth. It's the second birth that sparks this new allegiance in our hearts. All other allegiances to party or politics, to country or cause, to friends or family, all other allegiances bow to this primary allegiance, an allegiance to the king over God's kingdom, whose cause has become our cause, whose family has become our family whose heavenly country has become our true home. Jesus is God come to rescue. He is the king who has personally entered into enemy-occupied territory on a rescue mission to bring his people home, though it cost him his very life. And it did. It did cost him his life. That's what gives us verse 14. Look again at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know what's meant by redemption, right? If not, I'm going to explain it to you with an old Hollywood movie. One of our family's favorite movies is the Glenn Miller story. Glenn Miller, do you know who that is? Big band leader back in the 1940s, Moonlight Serenade. We were playing it this week in the moonlight. String of Pearls, if you still don't know who he is, look him up on your music app, and you're in for a treat. Glenn Miller was played brilliantly in the movie by Jimmy Stewart. Uh, The film opens with Glenn Miller going into a pawn shop, and he's buying back his trombone. He's redeeming his trombone. It was his, but through misfortune, he lost ownership of it. And this happens again and again in the film. He he strikes on hard times, trombone goes back to the pawn shop. He saves up enough and redeems it back to himself again. To redeem something is to bring it back into a correct relationship with the rightful owner. We belong to God. Just because he made us, we belong to him. But we creatures rebelled against our creator through sin, thinking we knew, knew best. Jesus has become our rescuer and redeemer, because he has dealt with our sin. He has dealt with our debt. Through absorbing our sin's debt on the cross, Jesus paid all that we owe. He has got us back out of hock. He's redeemed us from the pawn shop and its claims over us. So, who is Jesus? If he's not a liar or a lunatic, your only other option is to receive him as your rescuer, your redeemer. But that's not all. There's more, much more. Here's a second hitting for us. We need to see Jesus as God's reflection and radiance. God's reflection and radiance. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. 
Again, Paul is not claiming here anything that Jesus did not say himself. When Philip said to Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father. It'll be enough for us. Remember Jesus' response? I say this to my kids a lot. Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to us, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus tells his disciples that everyone who has seen him has seen God, has seen the Father. How is this possible? Paul tells us right here. It's because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, I hesitate to apply any illustrations here because we all know that illustrations break down when you start talking about the Trinity and how each person relates. So with great hesitancy, I want you to picture a mirror, a mirror. In that mirror, you see your own perfect reflection. There, there you are. There is your image, looking, thinking, doing everything you do. Now suppose, suppose you're not in a Marx Brothers movie where there's actually another person dressed up like you, just, just imitating your every move. Suppose that your reflection is fully you, but also is another person distinct from you. That person will do everything you do. That person has your character, has your personality, but you could also wave, and they would wave back. You could have a conversation. You could have a relationship. It's fully you in the reflection, but it's also fully another person. I don't know how well this illustration works, but I do know that God doesn't need a mirror to know his own reflection. Jesus is God's perfect reflection, who is also another person. Jesus is God's perfect idea of himself, who is also fully another person. Jesus is the radiance of his Father's glory, the writer of Hebrews says. He is the reflection of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature. In which case, the critical question needs to be asked. Was there a time when he was not? Was there a time when Jesus, the image and son of God, did not exist? There are two possible answers to that question. One is orthodoxy, and the other is heresy, Christological heresy. Not many questions are that important, but this one is. If we answer yes, there was a time when Jesus was not, then we are saying that Jesus is a created being. He's a creature, perhaps many magnitudes higher than us, but he's a created being all the same. A Jesus who is a created being might be the first of the angels, but he is not God. He's not the eternal God. This is what Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and virtually every other Christian-ish cult in the world believe. All believe this, down the line. 
believing Jesus is a created being. And that is a heresy that makes you not a Christian. By definition, not a Christian, because Christians are the people who believe that Jesus isn't a created being like you and me. We believe he is the creator. He is God. We believe that there never was a time when he was not. There never was a time when God the Son did not exist because there never was a time when God did not have the perfect reflection of himself. There never was a time when the radiance of the Father's glory wasn't shining in the person of the Son. We believe the old creeds that call Jesus the eternally generated Son of God, begotten, not made. As God's reflection and radiance, Jesus has always been. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. Jesus is the eternally generated Son of God and just as much God as the Father. But as the rescuer who has come to redeem us, God's self-image and self-reflection did something unique, did something uniquely special. He was fully God, but he added to his deity humanity coming together in Jesus All the essential properties of God, whatever those are, come together with all the essential properties of man, what it means to be human, coming together so that Jesus is legitimately fully God, fully man, perfectly united. 100% God, 100% man. God's self-image added to that image our Image, our likeness. God's self image added our image to himself, but without the marring effect of sin. Now, I've spent a lot of time unpacking this question Was there a time when he was not? Because here is the one statement that the Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or cult member will point to for support. Look at the rest of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. In what sense is Jesus the firstborn of all creation? The cult member understands firstborn in terms of chronology. Jesus is the first created being. But the Orthodox Christian, reading the context, both the historical context and the context of this passage itself, comes to a different conclusion. The Christian conclusion, which is our third point, by the way, is this. We see Jesus not as creation's first creature, but as creation's heir and maker. Creation's heir and maker. In the historical context of the first century, what did it mean to be called the firstborn? It meant you were the heir. You inherited everything. Everything your father had was yours. In the larger context of the Bible, is Paul saying something new when he says that Jesus is the heir of all creation? When he he says Jesus will inherit all things, is Paul saying something new no one else has said? No. 
Absolutely not. Paul is only saying once again what is said everywhere else in the New Testament. Jesus is the heir, the inheritor of all things. But if Paul were saying Jesus is the first created being, is he saying something new? Yes. In that case, Paul is saying something here that is taught nowhere else. Both the historical context and the larger context of the Bible point us to understand firstborn, not in terms of chronology, but in terms of inheritance. Jesus is the heir of all creation. That's the historical and larger context. That's what it points us to. But what about the immediate context? Let's look here again. Verses 15 and 16. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for... By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is described here as the agent through which all created things are made. He's the maker of all. Reading the Bible backwards, we are now meant to understand that when in Genesis God is speaking all things into existence, it is actually Jesus, God the Son, who is doing the speaking. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things come into being through him. John 1 says, he's in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Just like Paul says here, every single created thing comes into being through Jesus. If nothing is created apart from him, then that must include Jesus himself. Jesus cannot be part of the creation. Why? Because uh, he cannot be a created being since he's the one who creates all things. Nothing came into being apart from him. The Jehovah's Witness will say, oh, well, God created Jesus, and then Jesus created everything else. We can say to that, I, I understand you, but I hope you understand that you're making a big assumption. You're making a big exception to the text. This isn't what the verse says. All things, every created thing, is created through Jesus and for Jesus. Lucifer is the first of the angels, but it would feel blasphemous to say all things were created through him and for him. You can only say that about God. And isn't this amazing? The uniquely Christian claim about Jesus, the one who made galaxies beyond count, limited himself to a virgin's womb. The one whose sight could pierce all things becomes an infant with blurry vision. The one who inherits the entire universe tastes our poverty and works as a laborer with his own hands. The one who creates all things becomes part of his own creation. The one for whom all things were made lays down his life to buy it back for himself. When it comes to Jesus, the best 
option for us to believe is also the best story. An announcement of good news that wins our hearts and transforms our lives. You've been robbed this morning. You've been robbed by Jesus himself, by the happy thief who comes in the night. He has opened the safe of your heart and stolen away your perishable treasures and sorry excuses. But in their place, he has left you something. He has given you real treasure, a precious stone, a precious cornerstone upon which you can build your life. You've been robbed this morning, and you should thank God for it. Father, I pray that everyone sitting under your word right now would realize, perhaps even for the first time, what their options really are in relating to Jesus. May we know we've been robbed of what most of the world believes about him. That option is not on the table because of what he said and did, because of how his followers worshiped him. May all these things be be adding weight in our hearts until we come to the great joyful realization that he really is a king who has come. He really is a creator who has stepped into his creation. He really is a redeemer who has come to save me. May that joyful conclusion fall upon every heart this morning. May we believe it. May we rejoice in it as we respond now in song and in coming to the Lord's table. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.